Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we'll be reading Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, and then through J.C. Rao's expository thoughts on Luke. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. These verses relate events which are only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. They describe the first visit which our Lord paid, after entering into his public ministry, to the city of Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Taken together with the two verses which immediately follow, they furnish an awful striking proof that the carnal mind is enmity against God. Romans 8.7 We should observe in these verses what marked honor our Lord Jesus Christ gave to public means of grace. We are told that he went into the synagogue of the Nazareth on the Sabbath day and stood up to read the scriptures. In the day when our Lord was on earth, the scribes and Pharisees were the chief teachers of the Jews. We can hardly suppose that a Jewish synagogue enjoyed much of the Spirit's presence and blessing under such teaching. Yet, even then, we find our Lord visiting a synagogue and reading and preaching in it. It was the place where his Father's Day and Word were publicly recognized, and, as such, he thought it good to do it honor. We need not doubt that there is a practical lesson for us in this part of the Lord's conduct. He would have us know that we are not lightly to forsake any assembly of worshippers which profess to respect the name, the day, and the book of God. There may be many things in such an assembly which might be done better. There may be a deficiency of fullness, clearness, and distinctness in the doctrine preached. There may be a lack of unction and devoutness in the manner in which the worship is conducted. But so long as no positive error is taught, and there is no choice between worshipping with such an assembly and having no worship at all, it becomes a Christian to think much before he stays away. If there be but two or three in the congregation who meet in the name of Jesus, there is a special blessing promised. But there is no like blessing promised to him who tarries alone at home. We should observe for another thing in these verses what a striking account our Lord gave to the congregation at Nazareth of his own office and ministry. We are told that he chose a passage from the book of Isaiah in which the prophet foretold the nature and work of Messiah and what he was to do when he came into the world. He read how it was foretold that he would preach the gospel to the poor, how he would send to heal the brokenhearted, how he would preach deliverance to the captives, sight to the blind, and liberty to the bruised, and how he would proclaim that a year of jubilee to all the world had come. 
And when our Lord had read this prophecy, he told the listening crowd around him that he himself was the Messiah of whom these words were written, and that in him and in his gospel the marvelous figures of the passage were about to be fulfilled. We may well believe that there was a deep meaning in our Lord's selection of this special passage of Isaiah. He desired to impress on his Jewish hearers the true character of the Messiah, whom he knew all Israel were then expecting. He well knew that they were looking for a mere temporal king, who would deliver them from Roman domain and make them once more and foremost among the nations. Such expectations, he would have them understand, were premature and wrong. Messiah's kingdom at his first coming was to be a spiritual kingdom over hearts. His victories were not to be over worldly enemies, but over sin. His redemption was not to be from the power of Rome, but from the power of the devil and the world. It was in this way and in no other way at present that we must expect to see the words of Isaiah fulfilled. Let us take care that we know for ourselves in what light we ought chiefly to regard Christ. It is right and good to reverence him as very God. It is well to know him as head over all things, the mighty prophet, the judge of all, the king of kings. But we must not rest here if we hope to be saved. We must know Jesus as the friend of the poor in spirit, the physician of diseased hearts, the deliverer of the soul in bondage. These are the principal offices on earth that he came to fulfill. It is in this light we must learn to know him and to know him by inward experience as well as by the hearing of the ear. Without such knowledge, we shall die in our sins. We should observe, finally, what an instructive example we have in these verses of the manner in which religious teaching is often heard. We are told that when our Lord had finished his sermon at Nazareth, his hearers bore him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded from his mouth. They could not find any flaw in the exposition of Scripture they had heard. They could not deny the beauty of the well-chosen language to which they had listened. Never man spoke like this man. But their hearts were utterly unmoved and unaffected. They were even full of envy and enmity against the preacher. In short, there seems to have been no effect produced on them except a little temporary feeling of admiration. It is vain to conceal from ourselves that there are thousands of people in Christian churches in little better state of mind than our Lord's hearers at Nazareth. There are thousands who listen regularly to the preaching of the gospel and admire it while they listen. They don't dispute the truth of what they hear. They even feel a kind of intellectual pleasure in hearing a good and powerful sermon. But the religion never goes beyond this point. Their sermon hearing does not prevent them living a life of thoughtlessness worldliness, and sin. Let us often examine ourselves on this important point. Let us see what practical effect is produced in our hearts and lives by the preaching which we profess to like. Does it lead us to true repentance toward God and lively faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it excite us to weekly efforts to cease from sin and to resist the devil? These are the fruits which sermons ought to produce if they are really doing us good. Without such fruit, a mere barren administration is utterly worthless. It is no proof of grace. It will save no soul. That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today 
and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we've just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, in a day in which many are led astray by wanting a new spiritual experience, do we think lightly of God's means of grace in the regular meeting of God's people under God's word? Do we treasure the gathering on Sunday mornings or despise it? Second, how do we know Christ? As king only? As prophet? Or do we know him, along with those things, as the friend of the poor in spirit and savior from our sin? And lastly, do we listen to sermons week after week with a heart to grow in faith and repentance? Does it cause us to turn away from sin and resist the devil? Does it produce love in us for God and for one another?